Hey everybody, my name is Drew Baker. Welcome to the Brutal Podcast. On this show, I interview progressive winemakers, chefs, farmers, scientists at my kitchen table. On today's episode, I interview Lucy Morton, ampelographer and viticulture consultant from Charlottesville, Virginia. Lucy is an internationally renowned author, lecturer, and consultant, and was recently recognized as one of the most influential people in the North American wine industry. Lucy helps people like me grow healthier vines, more flavorful wine, and ultimately uh, healthier farms. All right, table set. Lucy Morton's in the house. Welcome to the show, my friend. Hey, Drew. Great to see you on a Super Bowl Sunday. (laughs) Good to see you as well, Lucy. How are things in Charlottesville? It's sunny today. We had snow this morning and it's all melting. So that's what I love about Virginia. We have beautiful snow and then it goes away again. (laughs) All four seasons, but not too much, right? Exactly right. I think that helps our wine too, to tell you the truth. I think so. I think so. Yeah, no, similarly, we woke up to uh, whiteout conditions. We got three or four fresh inches this morning and uh, now it's stopped and yeah, it's melting, which is nice. (laughs) Cool. So um, Lucy, we've known each other for at least four years. We've, we've worked together for four years now, uh, which is hard to believe. Um, we sort of got connected um, through some mutual friends, um, you know, at the impetus being the Burnt Hill Project, our new farm. Um, and, you know, you joined the Brain Trust, which we're so thankful for uh, willingly to kind of help us um, understand our farm. Uh, along with, with our mutual friend, Bubba Beasley, we examined the soils um, to, to understand what we had, what grape varieties, we should plant and where and how to source all the plant material. Lots of good uh, stuff that, that I want to talk with you more about on the show today. Um, but first, for our listeners, uh, I was hoping that you would uh, give a quick introduction. Tell us a little bit about who you are, your story, sort of as much or as little as you'd like to share. Well, Drew, being that it goes back to 1972, I think you want me to do the little side, not the no. uh, big side. I mean, you know. <laughs> Uh, 45 plus ish years uh, is a lot and it and it all of it's been with the grapevine starting at my pa- uh, grandparents farm then my parents farm in King George Virginia on the Potomac River where we planted a vineyard in 1973 and now my nephew bought the farm back into the family it had gone out for about 40 years so we're back to the future there I'm planting uh grapes uh, on our family farm once again. So uh, I'm really blessed. So in between the uh, adventures of planting a vineyard in King George in a site that frankly is pretty lousy for grapes. And I told my nephew absolutely no more than one acre of Chardonnay and Chambresin and a few of, yeah, a few other historic uh, grapes. But um, in between that, as you know, I kind of went around the world doing things uh, pretty much on the backs of uh, some expertise I got from Dr. Pierre Gallet in Montpellier in rootstocks and Native American species. I would say that Pierre Gallet, it was, he only recently died last year, the person in the world who knew the most about all of the Vetus grapes, all the different species, including Asiatic, American, you know, the average grape grower, I don't know, Italy, France, California, they couldn't give a flying flippy about anything but Vetus vinifera wine grapes or the grape grapes. And uh, so to have a guy that really understood about the necessary contribution that you get from rootstocks, which are by definition, uh, crosses with Native American grapes, th- that was a blessing. 
And uh, I was his first and only American student back then. And so he took special interest and it didn't hurt that I was female. He liked that part also. But um, secondly, um, Pierre was an the world's leading ampelographer. And for those of your listeners who don't know what that is, it's identifying grapes by their leaves. It's basically grapevine botany. Well, it turns out that not a lot of people have taken up this uh, calling. And I don't know, I mean, last time I looked, I was one of four certified by New Zealand uh, ampelographers in the world. So it's, it's not something everybody really cottons to, but I love it. and. Uh, so those two specialties, Drew, are what made people in New Zealand or Australia or California hire a, a, a woman from Virginia to come talk to them about their vineyards. Because don't forget, when I started in 1972, three, planted the first vineyard in 73, but did the research before that, there were zero wineries in Virginia, nada. And now look at us. So I, I've just been so grateful to have ridden this ride the way I did. And I give a lot of credit to uh, my French educators, but also my roots in King George, Virginia. Kind of a nice nice combination there, Drew. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And it, and it really, I mean, what a, a tremendous... Uh, resource you've been over the years to our region. And I think it's so cool to kind of hear your sort of um, grateful attitude for the journey that you've had. Um, but I think similarly, it, it's great when there's some symbiosis, right? Because I think the region is similarly so grateful for you, um, you know, having gone out and had the fun journey that you did and brought back such a wealth of, of, of knowledge from around the world that, um, boy, this industry would be really hurting for if it didn't have you. So um, you, you you did mention something that uh, that that I kind of want to tease out a, a little bit. Um, you, you you defined ampelography for us, and uh, you know mentioned that you know you're you're maybe one of four uh, in the world at this point, which is which is just amazing. Um, but uh, it it's pretty riveting. I remember when we were in New York, and uh, you know I think you know the the conceptually for our listeners, just thinking about the idea of identifying a grapevine by its leaves, its botany. You kind of picture I don't know maybe you know sort of like really boring glass plates and um, you know not much application. But when we went to New York and uh, we were at uh, a particular grapevine nursery that will go unnamed, walking around, um, I it was the first time I got to. To experience your skills in action. And, uh, you know, there were several moments where you kind of, you know, pointed out situations where there were end row tags on vineyards marking vines by their variety and clone. And you took a walk in the row and you looked and you started pulling leaves and you said, you know, I don't think this is right. <laughs> and, you know, you, you can really go into great detail looking at sort of, um, you know, the, the, the serrated edges of the leaves and the color and, and even like the hair fibers on the tops of the leaves. And it, for me, it was just like, um, it, it was fun to be a fly on the wall and just sort of watch the way that you worked and frankly, how practical that knowledge is when it comes to cultivating a healthy vineyard. It's really, it's really cool stuff. Well, it helps to start out <clears throat> with the right grape variety. Uh, you know, if you showed up at the Kentucky Derby in a with a quarter horse, uh, you know, uh, instead of a thoroughbred, you'd be a little bit at a handicap and vice versa if you were barrel racing, you know, a thoroughbred. So I know. And what's fun for me is that um, 
it kind of gives me an intimate relationship with the grapes because for me, the leaves are like faces, you know? I mean, it's like looking at a litter of puppies and knowing that they're, you know, beagles or <laughs> German shepherds or whatever, but it gives you an extra connection with the identity of what you're looking at. And um, yeah, so it's a lot of fun. It does get me into hot water sometimes because people don't always like to be told that, um, what they think is true isn't true. But the beauty of um, ampelography is that if it's true, it's true and I'll stand by it. But here's the other thing. A lot of people say, well, gee, Lucy, you must be obsolete now because we've got DNA technology. And I'm like, oh my God, thank goodness for DNA technology because it can back me up. But Drew, may I say, as we know from your own vineyard, if you've got 15 misfits in your block. So you think you've got 100% Cab Franc, but I go driving around with you and say, Drew, by the way, I see you've got, you know, Merlot in here instead of Cab Franc. How are you going to find that out by DNA? You're, you're not going to do, uh, how many vines per acre do you have? 1800 or whatever, yeah. but you're not yeah. going to do hundreds of DNA tests when you can just drive by with me and I'll go boom, 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 you put your red flag on and keep going. Now, we've had some situations through, and this may morph a little bit into plant pathology, but which is another kind of one of my focuses, uh, is if I say to you, Drew, you have a mix in your vineyard and it's substantial and it's some weird variety, I don't even know what it is, then you do have the ability to send that in for DNA testing. And there, voila, you found out what you had. And I guess similarly, you and I have been in the vineyard where we've seen vines with red leaves. And that is the proverbial red flag. Let's just say it is, you know, if the leaf tells you the identity, yep, this is American or whatever. It also uh, is a strong indicator of the health of the vine. The problem is the red leaf is like a headache. So a headache can mean anything from a hangover to a brain tumor. So really the same thing in, in grapes, you need to know, is that rep leaf something that indicates a fatal condition or a passing condition? or in between a virus that it's not gonna kill the grape, but it will impact your fruit quality. So I'm just morphing into, for me, grape leaves really are awesome. It's a lot like human faces. You know, they, they tell you, it's all in the eyes. <laughs> Yes, yes, it's so true. So let's um let's take that transition. Then I like it. Um, so so if a red vine can tell you uh, a lot about the particular health of a plant, uh, it's certainly you know the canary in the coal mine. More investigation is needed here. Uh, and when we're doing that investigation, tell tell us a little bit about that, right? So like I mean, you had mentioned uh, you know it could be a fatal virus. It could be something that will hamstring your ability to uh, to yield uh, fruit that makes exceptional wine. Um, um, or it could be a simple nutrient deficiency, right? Like this exactly. a here and now type situation. So when, when you're in the field and, and you, and you see uh, one, a, a vine with red leaves um, sort of take, take me, take the listener through your process, kind of what, what's going on through your mind. How, how do you sort of approach a, a vineyard when you're looking at it holistically? Right. Well, the first thing you look 
at is look around. Um, is that, if you just have a single vine with some symptoms, do you have a set of vines that are along the same row or in the same circular pattern, for instance, in the vineyard? So you, you, you kind of first stand back and say, hey, most of this field is really green and looks great, but there seems to be a subset here where the leaf coloration isn't as good. There, when you first see that and you see a pattern, that makes you think, well, uh, it could be a question of um, drainage. You know, we it is true. The truism that grapevines do not like wet feet is true. And if they have wet feet, that can cause them to show symptoms of deficiency. It can lead into way more susceptibility to winter kill. And so another thing I look at, you know, for winter kill, what do we look at? We look at the um, trunk and see, does it show telltale signs of agrobacterium galling up and down it? Because agrobacterium is a bacterial uh, infection that's in the vine, but you may never, you don't really care about it unless that vine gets injured. Uh, and then if it gets injured, those bacteria kick into action and cause galling that can ruin your graft union and things like that. Well, so coming back to the red leaves, that's a very common thing for me to look at in East Coast vineyards is the condition of the graft union and uh, the condition of the trunk. If I see obvious cracking or galling or something like that, that will cause um, red leaves because the redness comes from the phloem tissue, you know, xylem and phloem. So the water comes up the xylem or the wood uh, and the phloem is where the sugars go up and down. So the phloem is just this little teeny ring at the edge of the trunk. And mostly the water goes up and down the wood, which is a lot more of it. But if the phloem gets choked off for any reason, the vines turn red. And so if you have phloem loading bacteria, you know, there's just a lot of things that can happen to the phloem. One of them is this crown gall, uh, which will, we use the term girdle the vine, but it cuts off the transport. And so the re leaves signal you. Well, if I'm in the East Coast, I'd say 90% of the time, that's a huge reason for red leaves. If I'm in California, I have yet to see winter kill, but they do a lot of field grafting. And when you field graft a vine, it means you put a bud of the vinifera scion grape on the rootstock in the season and you fasten it on with a, um, a, a budding rubber or it's like a rubber band holds it on. Well, if you don't come back once that graft starts to grow and slip the back of the rubber band that held it on that got it started, it will choke it too, it'll girdle it. So the first thing I do in California is go look and see if we have a graft union <clears throat> that's being constricted just physically. So there are a lot of different things. And um, <clears throat> Drew, I know you and I did the our darndest to get healthy plant material from Burnt Hill. It is not as easy as people might think. And whoops, let me, excuse me. Uh, let me 
That happens to be my nephew calling, uh, who is at the vineyard and he's pruning. Uh, John, excuse me, I'm on a Zoom call right now. <laughs> and and uh, you look cold, you've been out pruning, but I'll call you when I get off, okay? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm about to go back pruning, so all right, see you in a bit. Okay, bye. <laughs> Sorry. Um, that's no worries, my... that's awesome, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, so um, at Burnhill, we were really, really conscientious about trying to source plant material that was free of viral infections. So when we visited your young plant, well, there are two things that we found in your plant material, but sticking with the red leaves for a minute. Remember how we looked at the little vines when they were one year old? Yes. And some of them had red leaves. Yes. And I'm like, well, they did tend to be in a place in the vineyard where I forget you'd had a driveway, but you hadn't done the soil prep that you, me and Bubba figured out what to do early in the dolomite lime and the, you know, being sure that we, um, got the vines off to a, a good start in a sort of a nutritional sense, in a soil physically sense. So they were in a place, may I say, Drew, that you neglected. You just, you hadn't really, <laughs> well, you hadn't prepared it the way you had prepared the rest. It just happened to be a perimeter. So we got a little suspicious that the, the reason they were red is they were unhappy. The roots were not happy. Maybe there was nutrition, but because there was an abundance of weed competition too. And weeds. And so, but I, we did find a few mixed in other places. And just because uh, I do do a lot of communication with Dr. Mark Fuchs at Cornell. He is a the leading virologist in the whole world. And he's a director of the research station. And you and I visited Mark when we went to the Finger Lakes. He's just such a terrific scientist. It doesn't hurt that he's French. I always, that's a positive attribute for me. But uh, we, I, Mark knows that if I send him something, it's it's worth figuring out whether maybe, um, maybe there's a problem. He's always so helpful. So we did send those just because we wanted to know sooner than later. To me, if they had, if those had shown up virus, then I would have said, Drew, every other vine that we see dotted here we got to take well we have to take them out period if they don't we're going to leave them in and you're going to take care of them get rid of the weeds and (laughs) give them a shot of dolomite take give them some love some compost or you know help, help, help those babies out and get going and that's what happened mark came back said everything was clean I felt good. You felt good. And the vines are still there, right? Yes, they are. Yeah. And, but I remember when we were around that same time when we planted the vineyard after, uh, after making sure that we source good, clean virus free plant material, um, you know, the set, something you said stuck with me then, which was, you know, beyond having clean uh, plant material, the number one uh, factor that will determine the longevity of this vineyard will be trunk disease, making sure that we keep um, the vines, the graft unions, particularly the trunks, uh, free of of disease. And uh, that is not easily done, as we know. And galling, uh, which you've been talking about extensively, is an issue, right? Um, you know, even here and now in this vineyard, which um, you know we've we've certainly not been perfect, but have cared for a tremendous amount. Uh, 
has, you know, including healing up by hand, uh, which was uh, no, which was a tremendous amount of work as well. And, um, you know, there's, it, it, it's still not challenging to go out and find galls and, um, you know, which is, which is just, uh, is that just a, to your mind, is that just a factor of growing <clears throat> grapes in the East? It should not be. And uh, anybody who gets the Australian Grape Grower magazine, there's an upcoming article by Richard Smart and Helen Waite. Helen Waite talked to my clients a few years ago. She is a PhD, but her specialty is quality plant material. And Richard Smart uh, is an independent viticulturist researcher, but he's very much gotten on the bandwagon with grapevine trunk diseases which it turns out to be one of those things that I personally kind of, uh, again, it made me very unpopular in certain quarters, but I, I saw this as a problem in, in nursery material. Beyond viruses, these are fungi that can infect a graft union and you don't see it for a number of years. And so um, the, well, it's, it's a big problem. Helen, just to say how current it is, this article is coming out in the next issue of The Grape Grower in Australia. I can't wait to see it. And I have an article that's I want to write, but um, it's so uh, look, look for it maybe in Wine Business Monthly. I, I, I don't think that growers realize how much these trunk diseases are still being handed to them on a plate by grapevine nurseries. The nurseries have not yet taken it up to the degree, and thank goodness they did take up the viruses well. They responded ter terrifically to this red blotch um, infection that's very recent. So hats off that the nurseries have really taken a lot of charge and responsibility for viruses. They need to do the same thing with these trunk diseases. And Drew, you know, because what did we do in your barn? And we were freezing to death as we checked every single graft union before you planted. Yeah. Because you have one opportunity, uh, if you're a grape grower, to reject plant material. And that is the minute you take it out of the box. The minute you plant it in the ground, uh, problem. <laughs> you're done. Because the nurseries have a laundry list of reasons why the plant failed that are all your fault. As my friend Michael Porter, the late great Michael Porter used to say, and on the list of excuses is the fumes from Elvis's UFO. So <laughs> I hate to sound like such a cynic, but but I am. And we, we, it's kind of like being for Toyotas in the 60s with General Motors. It, you know, it's not that you're un-American. It's just that those guys, you know, needed to up their game in certain respects. So here, that's how I feel about plant material. And it is not just the United States. It's international problem. That's why I brought up Helen and Richard in Australia, same thing in France. And this is why I um, founded the uh, International Council on Grapevine Trunk Diseases 20 some years ago, because I saw this symptom, which I called black goo uh, in rootstocks. And I was determined to find out what it was. And those of you who have the Oxford Companion to Wine, black goo's in there. So it's not just some weird thing, but <clears throat> I gave it a weird name because you use the word brutal for these podcasts. <laughs> it's brutal to be the one that points out <clears throat> that major institutions uh, and businesses have major 
have some fatal flaws in there. And Black Goo was very controversial back in the day. And everybody hated the name, but I came up with it because I knew it would mark that problem at that time, 1994, Napa Valley, me looking at a rootstock. Well, actually I had looked at it in New Zealand a few months before, but then I found it in Napa Valley and everybody's like, well, Lucy, we're going to call this phenomenon of clear sap being black instead of clear. We're going to call that Morton's disease. I said, you are not. No way. I don't need a disease named after me. So let's, we're going to call black it. Black goo it is. I love black it. Black goo. It, it, yeah. Right. Yep. It's, anyway, it, it's, it's memorable. It's so Lucy. <laughs> well, and, and Drew, you saw it. You have seen it in your own vines. Sure, it's it still perfectly in, describes the condition. It, yeah. So it's something we just have to keep working on. It isn't always fatal, but it's that problem is two, twofold, either young vine decline, either young vines that are stressed or they have a high level of these fungi in them and they're not very good quality plant material to begin with or flash forward. Let's say it's just a little bit of it in there. The vines grow well, you do your part. As they get older, the diseases start to accumulate. And I should say, it doesn't just come from nursery material. That's where it be, can begin. But these <clears throat> fungi also end up being come, coming a bit endemic in the vineyard and, and spread from vine to vine. Or... For sure. Well, <clears throat> let's talk about that then for a minute. We'll kind of bring it back to the factors that we do control uh, yes. on, on the growing side of things. Um, what are some guiding principles to your mind that are just really important, maybe often overlooked in vineyard management practices and maybe, and, and maybe how have those sort of evolved over time, right? You, like you've been, as you mentioned, you've been doing this for decades. What are some sort of patterns that you've seen and, and um, some <clears throat> insights that you've come to uh, become, you know, increasingly important to reinforce? Well, I'm glad you bring up evolution because I don't want people to think I you know, hopped out, newly hatched out of Montpellier with a set of universal practices. I did not. I came back to Virginia and uh, where we had wide spacing, you know, we, the early Virginia vineyards kind of copied what they did in New York state and what New York state was doing was growing them the way they grew Concords. They, you know, early on in our industry, uh, the issue of wine quality was definitely down the list of what was important. What was important was how big is my tractor was a big one. I used to call it the tractor factor. And so your vine spacing had nothing to do with efficiently using your property or creating vines of a certain balance. They had to do with your tractor, you know, needed a 10 foot row or and in addition, you wanted to get your pickup truck down there. So, you know, in the early days, things were all about convenience. Um, there was a myth that, oh yeah, well, this is America. We have a lot of land. You know, those Europeans, they have those little tiny walled in close. So of course they have close spacing. And, you know, back in the day they were farming them with oxen, but, you know, so that was a beginning part for me was, trying to focus, and, and may I say the same thing in California, in Napa Valley, because I have worked in tandem my whole career in both California and the East Coast. I went to, used to go to California three times a year, three or four times a year. Before COVID, this is the first time in 40 years I didn't go to California in 2020. And so 
they also were evolving from eight by 12 foot vine spacing. Why were they doing that? Well, that's how you grew raisins and table grapes. So nobody was thinking about vine spacing. So I would say that is something that was very much on my mind because my professors believed that uh, closer vine spacing and like everything else, there are boundaries there. Uh, it's not closer is always better, but it is a super consideration uh, is how many vines per acre, they call it vine density, is appropriate for your place. And it isn't going to be the same everywhere. You have to think about it. You know, do you have a lot of rain? Do you not have a lot of rain? I mean, ironically, in places like Spain or southern France, where it's very dry and they have no irrigation, they need wider vine spacing because they have a limited amount of water per year. So closer spacing, you'd have too much trans evaporation and the vines would go dry. And so it, you know, that wasn't the case in Bordeaux. So they could get, a, you know, where they have sump pumps in some of the greatest <laughs> chateau, Bordeaux's got tons of water. Uh, they could go, for instance, meter by meter if they wanted to. And many of the top ones did. Personally, uh, I came around to the fact, and I looked at a lot of research, I looked at a lot of vineyards, thought about it. For me, for uh, the mid-Atlantic region, there's a nice balance between a, uh, I like seven feet, you know, sort of a one meter by two meter, but let's Americanize it. For se I know it sounds silly, but I like seven feet by a meter or 40 inches. You know, what's a meter? It's 39 inches. So, you know, I like uh, the, uh, the uh, seven feet by 40 inches as a, um, as a vine spacing, but I, I don't want people to think I just jumped on that either. My guinea pig for close vine spacing in Virginia, what uh, in the, oh gosh, when was it? 1999-ish was uh, Chatham Vineyard on Virginia's Eastern Shore. And when the Wenner family um, went to plant there, I had sort of abandoned Virginia. I had kind of drifted away and was working almost full-time professionally speaking in California. And so the Virginia industry had, I mentioned my friend Richard Smart, had gotten into the sunlight, into wine phenomenon. And they had this idea that you that because we have a lot of rainfall, we have a lot of natural uh, vegetative vigor in our soils because they're virgin to grapes, et cetera, et cetera. You needed to build a bigger trellis to handle the vigor. You needed a bigger vine uh, to handle our conditions. So a bigger trellis will give you more space to deal with this vigor. Well, Which is just, the opposite of what you just mentioned in Spain. I know, but so, uh, yeah. Anyway, in, so everybody had these, uh, they were trying to build like the liar system was very popular, uh, quadrilateral systems, uh, wide spacing. You know, there were just all these ways that they, we're trying to cope with vigor. And I didn't feel comfortable with it. It just, I, I, what I thought was that yes, these, because I saw them in New Zealand, I, I saw them all over the world. The, and, and what my French professors said was the problem with these symptoms, uh, systems, they will work for a young vineyard. Young vineyards are exactly like uh, young people, young racehorses, you name it, you have more physical energy up to a certain point 
and then you don't. And grapevines have that happen. And so if you built a huge trellis to deal with the apex of a vine's vegetative potential, and then it starts to go down at 15 years old, which it does, uh, <clears throat> suddenly you're not able to fill that trellis up anymore. And it's a waste. And then what are you going to do to keep it going? Add a bunch of nitrogen? You know, then you're getting a dependent vine that, that you're having to. So one of the big issues for me was I wanted, because I also believe that um, vines should age a long time, that older vines do settle in and make really nice wines. I'd seen it in California. Again, I'd seen it over the world. I'd tasted wines from 10-year-old vines and 15 and 20 and 30, 40, 50. You know, knowing that I personally believe that older vines are a treasure, are something that you want. Uh, and I think they're more environmentally friendly. Who wants to be replanting vines every 20 years? Geez. So with that in mind, that I'm going for longevity, because you know me, Drew, I like to look at the big picture and then back up and say, what are all the little details that are going to get me to my goal? And you got to see if your goal is to, I used to call them the golden vineyards, to have it live a minimum of 30 years, you know, hoping you got the rootstock right, the vine is designed right, and the a variety, you know, that, that's right for your site. Uh, you want that to last 30, 40 years? It'd be nice. And so with that as a goal, just that as a goal, you don't want uh, wide space vines because they're not going to be able to fill up those ones. So I said to myself, we need higher density for that. And uh, with the Wenner family, Back in Virginia, where the wide spacing in the lyre was heavily promoted, and I said to them, listen, uh, I will be your vineyard consultant, but only if you plant at seven feet by four feet. Back then, four feet, seven by four, you might have as well said, put them, you know, six inches by six inches. That was considered <laughs> small. You needed a small tractor. You couldn't get your pickup down the road. You know, it costs more money. And the rumor back then was, well, Lucy Morton is working for the nurseries uh, because people are planting more vines per acre, so they're making more money. And I thought, oi vey, <laughs> talk to a nursery and <laughs> just ask well, them what hopefully, they think hopefully about Hopefully that uh, covered over some of their distaste for <laughs> calling out all the, the bad plant material they were pandering. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I did, you know, I'm an equal opportunist here. I mean, I just, the truth is gonna fall where it's gonna fall, but anyway, I got wet feet. This is in the late 90s. I got nervous because think about being a consultant. You're spending other people's money. This is uh, their family. The winners, I was going into my second generation. I had worked for his parents when I first got back from France at their Vidal Vineyard in Great Falls, Virginia. And now I'm working with them on the Eastern Shore with John, who's just starting family. I feel responsibility. I'm sorry for to do the best I can for them. And so what I did was went to Barbersville Vineyard because I said, I heard rumors that Barbersville was getting away from the catharsis system, which was also kind of a big, tall, widely spaced. There were reasons for doing those trellises. It's just, I didn't feel that they were appropriate for the mid-Atlantic regions for some of the reasons I'm telling you, but so I went there and uh, went around, uh, you know, and looked at the vineyard with Luca and all. And I said, so why are you going to closer spacing? They also were going to more like eight feet if they had a little bit of a side slope, seven feet if it was flat, 
I think meter probably ish between the vines. Um, and he said one word, two words, wine quality. Mr. Zonin and I believe you have better wine quality. Okay, so that, that rung my bells too. But again, I'm more of a vine person. I love, I love good wine and I think good wine quality has to be the an end point, but that isn't the only thing for me. I want, as I said, I think the singular thing is that I want the vines to live as long and happy a life as they can be. That cues up the next thing, Drew. Once you've got your vines closer together, you're looking at your training system and uh, what was very popular and almost de rigueur in the old liar system were cordons, you know, and for your listener, all a cordon is, is kind of a continuation of a trunk. It's an arm. It's a, it's a, it's a permanent arm on the fruiting wire that you cut back to uh, little one-year-old spurs, because that's with a lot of fruit, the fruit is on one-year-old wood. So the year that it had a grape on it, it was green. It goes brown. That's one-year-old wood. Those are the buds that will have the fruit for the following year. Well, you have two ways to go really in grapes. Either you go with little spurs, say two bud spurs every four, six inches along a permanent arm, or you lay down a cane, a one-year cane that's say 10 or 12 buds. Well, I had John Winter, bless his heart, my clients, including you, Drew, you're, 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 you're not out of the woods yet. You got a lot going on there at Burn Hill that I'm looking to see what the heck's going to happen. But anyway, with John, the thing of the day was, A, the closer spacing, <clears throat> and B, to go from cordon to cane. And my hypothesis was that if he so he had half of his vineyard. His vineyard was mostly back then that first planting Merlot and Chardonnay, and those two varieties. So I said, John, let's not, you had the, he, we had killed ourselves to make beautiful cordons. They were perfectly spaced. You know, he'd done an awesome job. So it, it kind of feels bad to take away a beautiful seven-year-old arm and come back to one measly little cane. There's something, you know, kind of anthropomorphic like chopping your arm off. So I said, let's just do half of them. And I think what you're going to find in a year or two is that the late season rots that are like to get into Chardonnay, the Botrosferias and the Macrophomas and this and that and the ripe rots, they live in these cordons, in the old wood of the uh, cordons. Uh, I think you're going to have less rot where you go cane pruning. And... If you do, you make your decision. Do you want to go to the expense of switching to cane? Well, he did. Uh, he called me, I think he said at the end of the first year, he said, Lucy, I see it. The late season rots are way less where we have the cane. And I said, well, that's right. Because guess what I call cordons? Mildew hotels. They are the fungi love them. And we, I love fungi too. I have a fungus named after me. So don't get me wrong. I'm a big believer in fungi, but I don't want the ones that can ruin, you know, make the fruit rot right there, right next to the fruit. So that, that was uh, one thing he did. And the second thing drew when he <clears throat> replanted and grew from his original 10, now he's at 20. I said, Hey, would you think about 
instead of four foot spacing, go with a meter. Your, your line poles are 20 feet apart. So you can still nicely put in, instead of having them having uh, four, is it four vines between the posts? You can have five and they'll be a meter apart. And he did. And what was good was uh, he has a guy, Jose, who has worked with him, I think pretty much the whole time. Jose is the man. He kind of rules the roost now. Well, the, and the first year or two, I asked him, Jose, how do you like the closer spacing? I don't like it because I've got more suckering to do. I've got more of this. You think you have more vines to take care of. You've got more vines to prune. You know, if, if, if you're looking at it just as units, work units, he didn't like it. Well, so then when we went to plant the next two and a half acres, I said, okay, Jose, it's up to you. You're farming this thing. I, you're making wonderful wine. I'm not going to go to bat for four, for a meter over four. It's up to you. He said, Lucy, I'm going with a meter. He said, I, I didn't like it at first, but I like how the vines balance out. He said, I can leave, what he likes is you can leave shorter canes, shorter canes, which means you have much more even bud growth. And Jose picked up on that. And that's where they are. So Drew, you asked me, so my evolution has been, hey, this seven feet by a meter spacing with vinifera grapes in the mid-Atlantic is working in the sense that I don't have a single client who wouldn't do it again. That's my measure of success is, is someone going to repeat what they did? And if they didn't, I better be heads up about why they didn't. And, and, and I'm ready to change my opinion on, you know, if somebody comes up with a reason. For so sure. But, but in the last 20 years, you've yet to have someone say, I'm going back to nine by 12. <laughs> no. And when I went to Italy, I went to the zone and <clears throat> the zonies have uh, vineyards in, uh, I think they've got like 5,000 acres in Italy, but nine different appellations. And I was visiting their museum and I looked at pictures of the old vineyards and the new ones that they had. And I asked their uh, head vineyard guy I says, looks to me like you're getting away from cordons. He said, yeah. He said, we used to be 80% cordon, now we're 80% cane. I said, well, what's your vine spacing? He goes a meter by two meter. I said, and this is over all of Italy. And I said, he said, because it's just so, it's easily mechanizable. It's just so efficient. You know, it just works well in the wine quality. Yeah. So yeah, it makes go. so much sense. In the VSP system, the vertical shoot position, having everything high and tight and in, in, in a straight line as compared to so many of the other, you know, sort of, uh, well, what used to be traditional trellising systems that involved multiple canopies. It, it, it's just a nightmare to manage. Um, so to your point, uh, and to Jose's point, right? Like there's a lot more vines to touch, but once you get that system down, um, you can really do it with your eyes closed as compared to farming some sort of liar system, which is just, you know, it, every vine is, it, it creates, it, you know, it, it, it's its own problem to solve. Oh gosh. Yeah. Well, and uniformity, you've heard me say, I want everybody, people like when I come visit you, Drew, you know what I'm looking at, you know, what's your report card going to be on your canopy management? Because if you have vines that have uh, the bull canes as big as your fist, and then these, uh, some wimpy ones, the size, you know, teeny weeny, they were out of balance and that that's on you. I want to look, I want all your shoots and canes to be roughly the size of a generous pencil. 
more or less. And if you find that you have, you know, shoots of all different um, diameters, guess what? You know what the number one. It's a management issue, right? Yeah. It's shade. And don't forget what's, what's the 11th commandment. (laughs) Thou shalt not shade thy neighbor. There you go. (laughs) Grapevines are programmed to uh, in the presence of shade. It's like loser. I am on the way to the top of the tree. You know, it's he who gets the top of the tree wins in grapevine world. So you have to make them feel safe in this environment to be non-competitive. I mean, let's not get too human being about it, but you know, they're not called bull canes for nothing. Right. Yeah. And and, and similarly, you know, uh, sun and wind are nature's antibiotics. So, so keeping, so that's another reason to avoid shade, right? Like not only do we we prevent the bull canes and the imbalanced growth, but you also suppress all of the uh, fungal pathogens that, that can be problematic later in the season as well. Yeah. And what is your sister looking for in the fruit? She wants uniformity, right? Yes. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) I can, uh, I can say, I can answer that for her with confidence. (laughs) So, um, you know, just to kind of like summarize you, you from, from a vineyard management perspective over the years, the seat, the thesis, the fundamental thesis that you've developed is that vine balance is just so important. And that to achieve that in the East, the things that used to be done that really needed to be changed and fortunately have changed in no small part due to your observations and and guidance along the way for so many growers has been uh, closer spacing, cane pruning, and managing uh, uh, vine size consistency of growth. That's true, but I never rest on anything. Those are the fundamentals. And I'm fortunate to have a wonderful group of clients who've stuck with me through thick and thin. And we're getting to the place where, what I, where they have got the fundamentals down. So you go in those vineyards and they look They've, they've got it together. They look good. Now what? Uh, now we do what I call the fine tuning knob. You know, we know how to turn the TV on and get the volume, you know, relatively under control, but what else? Well, we need higher definition or this and that. We need some, maybe some things you can't see. And this is something where Drew, I know <clears throat> you are so interested in, and me too, is the ecosystem is the ecosystem of the soil, of the vegetation, both in and outside the vineyard. What are we doing in our disease management to the ecosystem in general? Are we, are there things that we can do uh, that will select for healthy organisms that can compete about against the ones we know we don't want. I mean, I'm no Pollyanna. I understand that in any place in the world, you're going to have challenges when you're growing a crop period. That is, you know, we're not in the, go in the woods. You'll have downy mildew on the, on the uh, Vetus cordifolia, the woods, you have birds that eat them. You've got black, right? I mean, so we are trying to, um, do something that in we're asking more than you'd ask in nature, you know, going back to the horse race, you're asking more of a horse than if you're just, he's running around on Chincoteague Island, you know? So, but 
I want to do that in an environmentally thoughtful way. Uh, so I'm excited. There's, some, there's a, something I've been looking at for since I heard about it in the uh, grapevine trunk diseases 10 years ago um, to control Botrysferia, uh, which is chitosan. Chitosan is an enzyme that they get from uh, either crustaceans or the uh, aspergillus fungus, because fungal walls are made of chitin, but I won't go on and on about it. But I just want you to know, I really think that there are other ways that we can manage our diseases by looking at um, other uh, inputs, chitosan being one. Guess what? You know, you talk about toxicity. You buy chitosan, where do you use it? Ask Lisa. You can use it for Britannomyces control. You can drink that stuff. And we do drink that. You know, it's not, it's totally harmless. And uh, if that ends up being- Is it derived from shellfish by chance? Both. Shells, yeah, crustaceans, or the, I think the one they use in wine is derived from aspergillus fungus. They grow the fungus and get the chitin from there because that's what makes the cell wall structure. And what's interesting to me, because this is new, so believe me, bloggers don't think I really know what I'm talking about. I only know enough to talk about what I want to know more about. But in the Italian- In so many ways, this is the bleeding edge, right? Like there's no, there aren't people out there that really understand the relationship between mm. uh, crustaceans and chitosan and controlling Botrysferia. Like you're no. trying to connect these dots for the first time. Right, and I like to use the analogy of one hand clapping. That's me. I am one, I'm clapping. I got my hand up and I'm waving it because I see potential in something where I need another hand to clap with. I, I need my clients, but before I get my clients involved, I need another hand. Over my career, that other hand has been members of the scientific community. In the case of um, Kaidazan for Downy Mildew, uh, it's Gianfranco, um, Romanitsi, whom I met in British Columbia at the International Council of Grapevine Diseases, but, you know, over coffee hour, see, this is what I miss so much uh, with uh, COVID. So much of what you learn at meetings, you learn over coffee hour with somebody that you didn't really know. But Gianfranco had said, oh yeah, my, I'm just about to finish a five-year study in five sites in Italy on chitosan control of downy mildew. I'm like, are you kidding me? So this November, when somebody said, somebody sent me uh, his article from Plant Disease and I went, oh, that's Gianfranco's article. And you know how you can't, you can't download it because you're not a member? Well, I'm so I emailed Gianfranco and in 20 minutes I had it, I had it and we reconnected. And uh, you, I, I, I took the time now, Drew, now that I had a connection, now that I had another hand to clap with, I went and read everything. He's been working on this for 10, 15 years. And he, his evolution, you know, has led up to something that's finally for me, giving me what I might call actionable information, uh, where there are products that are labeled for grapes. I mean, I'm not going to go to Lowe's and buy crab meal and, you know, we, we have to do things legally. And anyway, 
I, I see promise, but it is a bleeding edge right now. It's way expensive, but I, I told people because what Gene Franco found out was two things. One, uh, that you need 10 times the dose of what it's the, the manufacturers of this stuff are labeling it at X grams per liter because it keeps the cost down. And most growers would have a heart attack if they knew it was going to cost $250 an acre instead of 50 or 40. So they keep the dose low. Well, the good news about that is one thing they've discovered is even at lower doses, these chitosans actually do help uh, grapevines create higher levels of the good phenols, resveratrol and keratin and stuff like that. So there's a wine quality component of this that you don't need very high amounts of, but to control downy mildew, because I actually wrote to Gianfranco, I said, Gianfranco, I think you're off by a factor of 10 in the amount of chitosine you're using because the manufacturer's level says use one-tenth of that amount. He said, yeah, they're going to say that because everybody would run screaming the other direction. Anyone with, has a, with yeah. a calculator is going to not- well, every, Anybody who's going to look at it like Captan or, you know, some fungicide that's on the commercial market and has been for years and you can get generics, you know, they're used to paying almost nothing for it. So you bring on a new product that is more expensive, A, because it's new and right now it's not. So is this a foliar application? Yeah, it's foliar. And, but in his article, he says that the, although the fungal based ones and the shorter chain uh, polymers and all is maybe more useful in wine for controlling things like bread and wine, the longer chain ones, which come from the crustaceans are better if you're looking for downy mildew control. So I'm at a place now where I know enough to be dangerous. I know enough to things to look at, dose related, but also I have clients and I would say that includes you, who if they absolutely knew that for an extra an acre, they could use something that meant that they didn't have to use some other materials. They would do that. And that improves wine quality. There's no downside to it. So I, I, I want to find out if it's true and then let the market take care of if it's affordable. Let the people who are really concerned about what they're using to control disease, let them decide. Because you know how valuable wine is. For sure. It, 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 that and, you know, um, even zooming out of it a bit further, when you look at land stewardship and, and a situation where, you know, I live on this farm, my house is, uh, I could throw a baseball and, and hit the vineyard. And, you know, I've got two young kids and another one on the way. So taking care of this vineyard in a way that, you know, I can feel good about, you know, my kids running around outside in the summer without shoes on and making sure that, you know, we're really being thoughtful about, you know, the next 40 years and the health of this farm. Arm, yeah, you know, a thousand bucks an acre here and now while we're in this experimental phase, um, you know, is a lot more palatable as compared to, you know, the same old, same old, which is just, uh, you know, is not the future. Can't be. Right. So as you know, I'm trying to get at disease management in a number of different ways. Kytosan is just one aspect of looking at other materials that if we understood them could be useful. Uh, and um, two, 
better understanding what varieties really need to be sprayed. Like, I don't think um, Chamersen gets downy mildew, so why would I spray for that? Sure. Maybe spray twice. You know, I want to get down to very uh, vineyard-specific schedules that are based on um, grapevines, natural resistance, and that is within the vinifera family, as I mentioned. Uh, well, let's just say... Um, Sauvignon Blanc does hardly gets downy mildew on the leaves. Cabernet Franc will get it if you sneeze. So let's take that into account, you know, and let's talk about it and, and, and be more specific. But you also are doing something that's dear to my heart, which is having a broader base of genetics there, because that by definition is going to bring uh more disease resistance. Now I have to warn you because I made my nephews planted 50 UC Davis virus-free, you know, micro shoot tip cultured Lenoir because I'm into doing these historic grapes. Well, guess what? That gets anthracnose like anthracnose like nobody's business. I've never seen anthracnose on vinifera. So I'm not saying you're not trading one thing for another, but We'll never be able to manage it efficiently and ecologically without naming names, knowing what you're talking about. Knowing like for instance, that anthracnose in strawberries is colitotricum and anthracnose in grapes is elsinose. They are not the same fungus. So, so they shouldn't where, with the same material. There's no overlap in management. No, but this is, nobody else talks about this. This is where I'm a little bit of an oddball in that I guess I'm attracted to the, what we don't know more than what we know. As soon as something's known, I'm out of there. Like I said, with my clients, we know how to prune now. We know how to space it. We're getting pretty good at different cover crop management. We understand now, thanks to working with Bubba and Cliff, that dolomite line is very useful and that we can't overdo it. You know, we, so, but once I know that I'm done, I'm, I'm on to other things, Drew. Yeah, it's that investigative spirit, right? Like you wanna to get to the bottom of something. Or not be bored, you know? Yeah. I'm not good at repetitive motion. I don't even do it well. Right. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I appreciate it. And you, uh, so you touched it on something that I, that I did wanna talk about. Um, which was multi-heritage grape varieties. I've uh, taken that language from you. Uh, really appreciate that. Hybrid grapes. Uh, yeah. And um, the, I, I think the importance uh, that they play in the future of this region as we uh, you know, seek to find that intersection of um, creating wines that are, um, you know, that, that offer pleasure and value to uh, you know, our region's consumers, but also can be farmed in a way that requires requires less inputs and, and offers more consistency and balance. Um, can, can you speak a little bit to, you know, to your mind today uh, as it relates to um, starting a vineyard for, uh, from scratch and like what kind of advice you would give to someone that might be listening to, hit, to this that, that has those ambitions in the future? That's a big one. First of all, I have to say how many people not everybody is, is as receptive to that as you, Drew. So I guess my one rule of consulting is to, do, to help people do what they want to do, not what I want to do. So I don't go in with it that I want to do this. And so you're somebody who 
wants to have multivitus in your vineyard. You, you want the biodiversity, which is just so hugely important, and I think in everything. Not everybody wants that. So I uh, am okay with that. It's not like I go in and someone wants to do a vineyard and they want to do all vinifera. I don't say, well, I'm not going to work with you if you don't go with more biodiversity. On the other hand, if they said, I'm doing wide spacing because I want to use my grandfather's tractor, I wouldn't work with them. <laughs> so I will, I'm a little flexible on that. But if, if, however, for instance, with my nephew, I said, no vinifera, you know, here, this is not a vinifera site. I grew grapes there, you know, for my family for years. It's not a vinifera site. And so he, we have an experimental vineyard there. We have some 90 year old Concord vineyard vines that my grandmother planted that you want to genuflect. They're beautiful. Think of that 90 years old, these vines and they're works of art, everyone. Yeah. Anyway, but so with him, I'm kind of doing what I would do in a situation where he didn't have vinifera, which is use I chose Chambersen and Chardonnay because back when I made wine there, Chambersen and um, Saval Blanc made the best wine. And I think Chardonnay is an upgrade from Saval. And so that made sense for me, for him. I don't want everybody to do it. And also Rosemont Vineyards done really well uh, with their uh, Rosé of Chambersen and with their Chardonnay for their whites, but they just love their vinifera reds like crazy. So I think we have work to do personally with the reds and but we're thank goodness we're not alone in the world so we're gonna the thing that's gonna that gets in my way a lot of times is I see what I would want to do if I could just do it and that would be to go to Europe which I did and have done and look at the new like 97% vinifera crosses that have been made in Austria, I think you know some of those. Austria and Switzerland, they've got some incredible multivitus, but which are very vinifera-like in their wine quality. I would love to try those here, but how am I going to do that? We have, we can't get them into the United States, um, and so, uh, but I just uh, signed a letter of recommendation for a uh, a. Uh, Virginia Wine Board grant, I don't know if he'll get it or not, but that uh, Ben Jordan put in specifically to brainstorm vine breeding for the Mid-Atlantic. We need those initiatives because my feeling was if we fund that person, because I don't have time, I don't have time to focus on all those wonderful new varieties that are already out there that the peewees are doing. You know, you've watched Fetus Prohibita, the movie yeah. and everything. That is already out there. I, Lucy, I don't have the bandwidth to take that on. But boy, if we could get a guy in Virginia that's paid full time to do nothing but look around the world as at what plant material we think would enhance our industry that's already here, that person can then coordinate with Mark Fuchs at Cornell, who's got the quarantine station and the USDA, and make that happen. So we, I'm excited about that. Yes, absolutely. I talked with Ben Jordan about that six months ago or so, and I'm so happy to hear that it's coming to life. It, well, it's I hope so. I wrote a letter. That doesn't mean he got the funding, but I hope so. 
(laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Well, Lucy, I uh, consider you such a mentor and love the way that you think and having these conversations with you. Um, But I I did kind of want to give you the opportunity. You mentioned Pierre uh, Gallet. I'm wondering, um, in your journey, uh, are there there other folks that have provided mentorship for you uh, that that you would consider sort of instrumental in your journey, um, getting to where you are now, which is, you know, very much providing guidance to, to our industry as we collectively try to, you know, decide what the next 10 and 20 and 30 years are going to look like for wine growing here? Well, as a matter of fact, Drew, uh, you'll be happy to know three of my main mentors in viticulture in the East were from Maryland. Cool. Philip Wagner, a Bordy Vineyard, hugely a big mentor and uh, my dad bought his first book on making wine in 1933. And uh, I bought my first vines from Phil and what he did by providing uh, plant material, however sketchy in some ways uh, it was, I mean, looking back on it for what we know now uh, was huge, but also he provided small winery equipment. The, you know, a lot of people, again, when I when you get started in something, you're frustrated. You know what you want. You can't get it. So Phil, hats off to Phil Wagner in Maryland for what he did. It was huge. Another one in Maryland, uh, John McGrew. I'm not sure if he's still with us, but John McGrew was the USDA grape breeder stationed in Beltsville, Maryland, who was breeding for black rot resistance, mostly using Vita scenario. I don't think he ever actually got once done. I don't know that his program was funded long enough, but he was dedicated to the American Wine Society. He loved the St. Francis grape, which to tell you the truth, I've kind of lost track of. I think it's a Munson, maybe one of those kind of Midwestern grapes. Anyway, so here you've got a USDA grape breeder Harvard educated, super smart. I had not met him, but I contacted him when I was doing my thesis in, at, uh, in Montpellier on viticulture de l'Estie, Tazuni, viticulture in the United States. I wrote, every, what am I going to do? I'm in France and I'm trying to write a thesis on wine growing Eastern America in the 70s. Well, good old John McGrew, I wrote him. He wrote back and he said, Lucy, don't let those French people make you feel inferior. Uh, he said, Mechanical uh, cultivation of grapes is going to come out of Cornell University. Uh, mechanical harvesting, sorry. The, the, the newest mechanical harvesters that are going to revolutionize the industry are being done right here in New York State. We have more Vetus species than anywhere in the world. You know, and he gave he really gave me a pep talk. He said, and Nelson Charles is working on the Geneva double curtain trellising system, which is going to again show, you know, how important vine management is and blah, blah, blah. So John... Man, by the time I got home and walked into Beltsville, this is me at 23 too, don't forget. Uh, I walked into his office and it was like, wow, you know, Dr. Livingston, I presume. Well, he not only was a great mentor, was a super scientist. He'd been to France, so he knew their European ones. He gave me uh, Dr. D.H. Scott's library of grape materials when D.H. Scott retired four boxes. So I have a grape pamphlet, scientific grape research that goes back to the 1880s in wow. my 
office. And when I get to do my rootstock book and you know, I, I've decided I have two books I want to do, Drew. One is the bibliography I did before the internet and one is after because nobody's going to have the before the internet stuff that I've got. Thanks. Right. To anyway, so that was one. Then uh, Hamilton Mowbray of Montbray Vineyard also was a Francophile. But and that was, a, was he in Washington or Frederick County? Westminster. In West, where's Westminster? That's where, I mean, that's where old Westminster is. Yeah. So his yeah. beard was just north of Westminster. Yeah. If you name the road, something Valley Road. I, I went there a million times, but it's not in my hard drive right this minute. Okay. But here's what, here's what Ham Mowbray did, which is brilliant. He interfaced with Dr. Constantine Frank, who did great things for promoting vinifera in the East. The problem with Dr. Frank was, or the challenge with him was that uh, he was only vinifera and he hated American grapes, hated hybrids, said that they would give you brain damage and blah, blah. So uh, Mowbray managed to work with Dr. Frank, grow Cabernet Sauvignon, make good wine. You guys make good Cabernet. Remember Brett, uh, oh gosh, I, I remember Myersville. There was Cabernet Sauvignon and, and Catoctin Vineyard and all of that in Maryland. And that was thanks to Ham Mowbray. Who would have thought that we could grow Cab Sauvignon in Maryland? Ham told us that, but also he loved Saval Blanc. And he did, oh, what were they called? Not tetraploids, but he did some special, you know, type of Saval that was very, you know, advanced thinking. But again, he brought a scientific touch. He brought the French flair. And he was made it okay to be a, have a hybrid and a vinifera coexisting, you know? So That's those cool. were good. And the other very major one, who's somebody that I think a lot of people have forgotten is uh, Leon D. Adams. And um, he wrote Wines of America. And when I was doing my thesis in France, uh, I had my parents email me uh, Leon's 1973, I think it's the second edition of Wines of America. He was the wine historian. He wanted to make wine grown in all 50 states. His belief was that wine is the beverage uh, of temperance. And he believed Thomas Jefferson's, no nation is drunken where wine is cheap. And uh, he knew that Americans had no idea where wine came from. And he wanted to make the connection. We wanted people to understand that wine's agricultural, it's not industrial. And he said, the best way to do that is to have local vineyards and wineries. And so Leon was more, including in Maryland, he was more influential on helping people get the quote unquote farm winery acts than anybody. And that's huge. And we all owe it to him. And what I, again, I was in my early 20s. He was in his early 70s, I think. And uh, I wrote him a letter and said, hey, if you ever come to Virginia again for your third or fourth edition, I'd be happy to drive you around. Next thing, <laughs> I got a phone call the next day, practically. I'm coming to Washington for the wine ingredients labeling hearing. I, this would be a great time to see, you know, what's happening in, in uh, the mid-Atlantic. And so I met him at the airport with his pipe and his beret. And we became, he became a mentor and he did the forward of both of my books. Wow, that's amazing. Terrific, terrific. He founded the Wine Institute in 1933. And we realized that he wanted to see all the um, small winery startups in Eastern America. And I want to see all the vineyards. 
And it was yeah. a great partnership. Yeah. That's amazing. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for sharing. I wrote all those names down and we'll do some, uh, some further homework. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. Leon, just think about what he did uh, for us. It was amazing. Yeah, for sure. I mean, just uh, just thinking about the way that you put that, the, the paradigm that local wine is essential to allowing the consumer base to understand that wine is agricultural. And without that connection, uh, you need local wines to make that connection. And without those, without un, without a, that understanding, our industry wouldn't be where it is. And, um, you know, I've even talked with Rob DeFord, uh, you know, who purchased Bordy Vineyards uh, from Philip Wagner. And he, um, you know, obviously was, was around and is familiar with the industry in the early days. We didn't get started until 2010, which was also the year that in Maryland, they passed the Modernization Act. So I am completely unfamiliar with what it's like to grow grapes and make wine in a state where there were prohibitionist era uh, laws still at play that wouldn't allow, for example, the tasting of wines at a farm that grew the grapes and turned it into wine or would only allow the sale of one bottle or two bottles per customer per visitor. You know, all of these obscene regulations that to my mind are just like, I mean, it's just not reality, but you know, to think that just 15 years ago, um, that's the way that it was. And uh, I can only imagine the frustrations that someone like Leon Adams dealt with way back in the day where he looked at a country that, you know, was losing an entire generation of, of wine awareness because of these laws. Oh, absolutely. It was all the post-prohibitionist stuff. I mean, uh, if you talk to Linganore, another of the early pioneers going into third generation, that's why do they have a million wine labels? Because you can sell one bottle, one label per consumer per month or some crazy thing like that. So you had to have a way to, to get around to survive. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> That's but a lot of people too, Drew, ask why did Virginia grow so much faster than Maryland? You know, we have a friendly rivalry. As far as I'm concerned, there should be a mid-Atlantic region with North northern North Carolina, Southern, Southeastern Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Virginia. To me, you're a region. Yeah. The state lines are a little questionable, you know, to some degree, but we have them and our laws are there. And um, I tell people the reason Virginia did get going faster than Maryland, uh, because I was on the committee uh, with the governor and the secretary of agriculture back then, and brought Leon Adams to talk to them specifically, uh, Leon said to them, agriculture can beat liquor in any legislature. And he said that directly to uh, Mason Carbo, our secretary of agriculture. And we, M Carbo bought it and he hired Bruce Socklin and Tony Wolf. So we had a state viticulturist, a state enologist for a long time. Tony's been there over 30 years. And a governor that understood the importance and power of wine as agriculture. A department of agriculture that saw uh, what would be a growing sector instead of a dying sector, like say tobacco. Yeah, absolutely. Whereas in Maryland, you guys. Um, we didn't stop seeing wine. We did not start seeing wine as agriculture as opposed to uh, booze manufacturing uh, until 2010 was was really when that changed. And uh, and even still, we're constantly fighting that battle. And and it's a it's a constant rewire uh, reminder that's needed. Um, so yeah, you're you're right. It's just uh, you know legislative support is so important for any industry. Absolutely.
Yeah. Cool. Well, Lucy, um, for our listeners, how can, uh, how, if someone is interested in connecting with you uh, in the future, how would somebody go about doing that? Uh, I don't encourage that, Drew. Okay. <laughs> I, I so love, do, do you have uh, books? Is there a way to follow your work? Well, I, 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 I do have some books. My problem is I have to, I'm so busy like you said, kind of out on the ble bleeding hand with my one hand out there to look for environmentally sustainable solutions that to pull back and write what I already knew is a discipline that I'm, I'm working on. It. I, I mean, I, I, it's, it'll happen. There, there will be some books in the next couple of years. They're already written. And it's just a matter of me saying, okay, Lucy, devote, you know, focus on this, devote the time. So there's that. Uh, I would also say that people, the best way to get to know me is to go visit people I've worked for. And I never give out a list of my clients, but often they will tell you that I'm working with them. I leave that up to them. Sure. But they can do a little detective work. They can go talk to somebody like you or somebody else that, you know, and find out. So I kind of think the best way uh, would be to uh, go visit the vineyards. And, and what's kind of fun is you'll see some similarities and you'll see a lot of differences. No, you're just like my kids. They're, they look alike, but they're not. <laughs> yeah. And, and how, and how boring, well, I mean, you, you've, you've sort of self-described yourself as someone that gets bored quickly with monotony. Right. So I'm sure right. that that's probably subconscious that your clients do run the gamut. Right. So that you constantly have some new challenges to help solve. Yeah. And I like to say I'm repulsive to people who don't like me. So that means I attract people who are, are, are we're going to be a good match. And that's a lot of different. Right. It's self-selecting. That's good. <laughs> it's sort of a self-selecting thing, but it's also, it's not in my head. I, it's all about the energy. You know, it's all about the first date. I, I know I can tell over the phone whether it's going to work or not. I, a few years ago, a guy called me and was talking about consulting and this and that. And at the end of the conversation, I said, you know, I, I just not sure that I'm the right person for you. And he goes, you mean I'm fired already? <laughs> and I said, well, maybe you can put it that way, but I just know there's certain people that I'm going to work out well with and other people I'm not. And it's, it's kind of a matter of energy really, but. That's awesome. I yeah. love that. Well, thanks, Lucy. It's been a, a, a pleasure chatting with you today. And uh, thank you so much for your time. Um, thank you uh, to all of our listeners today. Uh, if you enjoyed this conversation, feel free to uh, subscribe and uh, uh, to whatever application uh, that you like to listen to podcasts on. Um, Lucy, it's been a pleasure. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Same, Drew. Same, Drew. Take care and save me some honey and shiitakes. <laughs> all right. Sounds good, Lucy. Okay.